Welcome to The Investigation. I'm Chris Vlasto, senior executive producer here at ABC News and the co-host of this podcast. I'm joined today by senior national correspondent and ABC News World News Tonight anchor Tom Yamas. And listen, we just had a very big investigation outside of impeachment. And the story involved billionaire, former mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg. And actually, the investigative team, along with Matt Mosk, who's down in Washington, who's the senior producer of our investigative team, and Sasha Pesnik, who's covering Michael Bloomberg and Elizabeth Warren. And Tom, let's start with you. What uh, Describe what this story was and what we were trying to do here about Michael Bloomberg. Right. What, what we try to do is basically tell the story, because there are a lot of allegations out there about the kind of language Michael Bloomberg used when he first started his company in the 80s and 90s. Allegations that really have followed him his in, entire political career. But not a lot of reporting has been done on it for a variety of reasons that we found out after looking into this. But what follows the allegations of the crude language are lawsuits against Michael Bloomberg, but more against the Bloomberg company. And when Michael Bloomberg is named in these lawsuits, they essentially blame him or hold him responsible for sort of fostering this culture, if you will, um, of of men being able to say what they want to women, uh, sexual harassment, sexism, uh, gender inequality. And so we started to dig from the start. You know, where, where did this problem for Michael Bloomberg really start? And, and it starts in the 90s, really. That's when some of these allegations come out. And, and one of the things we found is we, we actually got to the first attorney of a former Bloomberg uh, employee called Sakiko Sakai. She was a regional sales manager, and she had this almost unbelievable allegation against Michael Bloomberg. And we spoke to her attorney. This is the first time her attorney's ever done an, an interview on television. Here's the allegation. She realized that she was pregnant, and she went to tell Mr. Bloomberg that she was pregnant, and she thought he would be pleased that she was pregnant. She said that to him, and he said to her, kill it. And then what did your your client think when he told her, kill it? What she said she felt was very distressed, and more distressed than perhaps I even would have been if I had been in her position. That's my recollection. It really upset her emotionally. Um, and and I, I don't I haven't spoken to her in, in a number of years, but I was very impressed by how up- upset she was, how un- unhappy it made her. And we should say Bonnie Joseph, who's been practicing law, I think she told me for 50 years, a very well-known attorney throughout New York, said she found her absolutely credible. And not only that, she interviewed about a dozen other Bloomberg employees at the time, men and women, who described a very similar culture. Now, in her lawsuit, Sakai, who resigned soon after her child was born, alleges that she understood that statement of Michael Bloomberg to mean that I should have an abortion to keep my job. Now, Bloomberg has said that he has not said that. Uh, They've denied the allegations. But the problem is that there were other allegations from Sakai. She said at one point he told her, if you look like that, I would do you in a second, gesturing to another woman. Another time, Bloomberg allegedly told her, your ass looks huge in that new dress. So there was there, there was several allegations here. And then on top of that, you have this thing that Sasha um, uh, found an original copy of, which is called the Portable Bloomberg, the wit and wisdom of Michael Bloomberg. Well, let's talk to Sasha. So, Sa- Sasha, you're covering a candidate, and then all of a sudden you come to the investigative team, um, of which I'm the head, and say... I've got a tip that there's this book lit with all these salacious things that uh, Michael Bloomberg has said over the years. What did you end up doing? Yeah, that's right, Chris. So first of all, Michael Bloomberg, he is a 
very well-known billionaire, obviously, and the former mayor of New York City. So there's already a lot of uh, heady power and money going on behind the scenes here. So when we hear that there's this potential book that we don't know what's going to be in it at all. It was first reported back in 2001, a decade after this book was given to him as allegedly a gag gift at an office party, uh, sort of a laughable borscht belt humor sort of thing that his employees gave him, quoting all of these witty quips that he had. Uh, and then it was first reported back in 2001 that this book was a thing. What's in this book, though, you end up uh, 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 a source of yours. You rummage, I think, through an attic and you find this book. But what's inside the book is actually really crude, salacious stuff. I'm Matt Mosk, who's down in Washington. I I mean, you think part of what we see in this book and in the lawsuits as well is like a window into what it was like working in in these Bloomberg offices during this time period. There is what uh, is alleged by these women to be a very um, frat-like culture in the office where men sit around and rate their female colleagues based on a number scale of how they look. Uh, Bloomberg himself is quoted uh, at times in the book and then at other times in these lawsuits uh, about movie stars that he'd like to sleep with or like to perform sex acts on Jane Fonda, Sybil Shepard, Sharon Stone, uh, and talks about this in this office environment. But I will say, I think the most disturbing piece of the uh, allegations that are laid out by these various women, most of which came in the 1990s, was about what happens when you're pregnant and working for Bloomberg, and that he seemed to carry... Uh, they allege this very cavalier attitude about women having children uh, rather than staying at the office and working. I want to backtrack, though, a little bit before we get into that, because, Tom, you have the book now in front of you. What? Read it, just a couple of these quotes. Yeah, here are three that we mentioned in our Good Morning America report. If women wanted to be appreciated for their brains, they'd go to the library instead of to Bloomingdale's. That's one. I know for a fact that any self-respecting woman who walks past a construction site, doesn't get a whistle, will turn around and walk past again and again until she gets one. Here's another one. I want an expletive from Jane Fonda. Have you seen Jane Fonda? Not bad for 50. But let, wait, wait. But now let me play the devil's advocate here. Let me, let me play even Team Bloomberg. This is the 1990s. He's going to say it was a joke. Uh, is there a point to that? He's saying that he doesn't remember the quotes. That's that's what we were told. But if you open this book, and again, we have an original copy, and the second page of this book says, yes, these are actual quotes. No, nothing has been embellished or exaggerated. And yes, some things were too outrageous to include. But now here's a more metaphysical. Uh, we spend a lot of time uh, talking about Donald Trump and all the crude things that Donald Trump has said. Do you think the public's inured to this kind of stuff? Do you think people care about this? I mean, we'll, you we're going to have to, we're, yeah, Trump. We're gonna, we're gonna have to find out. Look, Donald Trump survived it. He continues to survive it. Um, and, and he really hasn't changed the way, as far as his public persona and the way he responds to this. I will say this. It is an incredibly competitive Democratic race right now. And the progressive wing of this party has been the most vocal so far. Women's rights, women's issues are at the forefront of this election this year. And the only thing the Democrats have attacked Michael Bloomberg for, really, is that he has too much money. He's trying to buy his... his the, the nomination. But this is important, especially to all those female voters out there. And you got to remember, Chris, one of the biggest marches that happened 
after President Trump was elected was the Women's March in, in cities all across the world. So I, I think it's important. And for me as a journalist who covers politics, who, who thinks, you know, I, I, I know a lot about stories. And I even did local news in New York. I don't remember a whole lot about this Bloomberg story. I don't remember about this a lot. And for some reason, I don't want to say he's been given a free pass because it has been reported out there. One indication that the Bloomberg campaign recognizes the seriousness of this is the statement that they gave to us, which is not a hard denial, not a hard defense. It's more of a a nuanced statement. They say Mike has come to see that some of what he has said was disrespectful and wrong and that he believes his words don't always align with his values and the way he's led his life. That's a very careful, nuanced statement that basically says he's he's treating this seriously. And Sasha, you actually went up to him yesterday uh, on on the campaign trail and asked him about this story. He seemed ready for it, no? Yeah, he seemed ready for it, and he definitely should be, because this is in the wake of the Me Too movement. The last time that we were talking about this at all was back in 2001, and it was a very different time when a lot of things that were acceptable then are not acceptable now. We went up to him, we caught up with him on the campaign trail, and we asked him, do you think you've made any mistakes in the way that you've treated female employees at your company? Take a listen to what he had to say. I don't. um, Not everybody's happy, but we have an enviable record of... uh, treating people the same in terms of compensation and promotions and authority and uh, there will always be somebody that's not happy but uh, we are we do very well in terms of uh, attracting uh, men and women to come to work in the company and the retention rate with both of them is as good as I think any real company so Looking I'm very back, proud of what we do different? I couldn't hear you. Looking back is there anything you would do? Oh, um, you, I, I, you'd always do something slightly differently but no fundamentally I think our policies of how we treat how we respect people and promote people and uh, give them opportunity is something that I'm very proud of uh, the senior management in our company is a lot uh, women who uh, the, the woman who runs my campaign uh, run, ran, uh, runs my foundation runs my life right and that's all a really legitimate thing to say. It's a really legitimate defense. And to play the ball from Team Bloomberg's court for a second here, uh, great. All very well and good. But the person who compiled this book was a very senior woman at his company at the time. And she's saying these are verbatim quotes from Michael Bloomberg. But you cover another candidate on the on the campaign trail, and that's Elizabeth Warren. And that, I think right now, is she the only uh, woman left in the top 10 on the debate stage? Or... Uh, yeah. What, has she had? Have we asked her yet about these? We're, you know, we're ready and waiting to hear what she has to say about it. She's certainly knocked Michael Bloomberg a lot for his money. We'll see what she has to say about this. But it's also very early in this race. There's been not a single vote cast yet in the primaries. Maybe some of the Democratic candidates are waiting. It should also be said Bloomberg's polling at around four or five percent right now with all the money he's spending. So he's still sort of a middle tier if you if you if you even want to call him that at five percent. He hasn't really surged yet. So they may be holding their fire until a later date. We we don't know. Thanks so much to all of you for coming. When we come back, we're going to be speaking to former House manager during the Clinton era, Bill McCullough, who weighs in on all things impeachment.
Welcome back to the investigation. I'm John Santucci in Washington. We are gearing up for a House impeachment vote later this week, potentially on two articles of impeachment against President Trump. And after it leaves the House of Representatives, it's going to cross the hall and head over to the United States Senate, where a trial is most likely to begin as we start a new year with 2020. And part of that process is that there are actually individuals as part of the House team that head over and are a part of the Senate trial. They're called House managers. So we thought, why not bring a House manager from the last impeachment that the United States watched in for a conversation? So we're joined right now on the phone by Bill McCollum. He is a former congressman from Florida, also served as the Florida State Attorney General, and of course, as I mentioned, was a House impeachment manager during Bill Clinton's impeachment trial. Thank you so much for joining us today, Congressman. I'm glad to do it with you, John. My pleasure. So let me start with you first, because I, I, as you know, we've all been sort of re-educating ourselves. A lot of people uh, watching this on TV are doing the same. Uh, that role of a House manager, what exactly does that person do in a Senate trial? Depends upon the assignment. Uh, there were 13 of us, and uh, my role was to do two things. One, uh, preliminarily, I was in charge of preparing the witnesses, arranging for when we did have, at least by video conference, uh, an opportunity to interview them, to get the person who was going to take their deposition. I did not take the depositions uh, in, in with them and with their attorney and so forth. But the main thing I did and during the impeachment trial was to present uh, a 30-minute summary of the facts after the first day, the beginning of the second day of the presentations by the House managers. And we were presenting the case, if you will, uh, in front of the Senate, uh, orally and with whatever evidence we were permitted to to submit. Um, so I spent time doing that, and then later on I made a 15-minute, I think I actually did more than that, argument for witnesses live on the floor, which ultimately was denied, but I felt very passionately about that, and I still do. And then I had a, a role at the end, uh, most of us were given about five minutes or so by Henry Hyde to present our own thoughts in closing uh, at the very concluding day on the 8th of January of, of 1999. So you mentioned their witnesses. It's interesting you say that because over the last several days we've been watching uh, in media reports conversations between the White House and uh, the Republican Senate majority leaders um, just about that. It sounds like Mitch McConnell uh, does not want witnesses. President Trump uh, is waffling a bit saying that, you know, uh, it'd be great to have witnesses, ex- expose um, what he is often referred to as a witch hunt. Uh, and then other times he has said, well, the Senate can do what it wants. If you were involved in this process, it sounds like you would be calling for witnesses to show up. I probably would. Uh, the key issue that's different between the Clinton impeachment and this one is whether you believe in this case that even if all the facts were that are now known proven to be true, there is a truly impeachable offense that was committed. Uh, the Democrats in the House obviously are thinking so, and I think it's highly likely they'll send that uh, to the Senate in that fashion. In the case of the Clinton impeachment, we had a number of felony crimes perjury that's lying under oath in front of a court, uh, both at the grand jury level and in the deposition of the Paul Jones case, but also obstruction of justice uh, in a very interesting fashion, Very several times uh, involved in this. In this case, it's really a question of the Democrats uh, and the House apparently saying, look, the President of the United States, President Trump, uh, did something that was trying to dig up dirt on one of his opponents by holding back aid 
that otherwise would have gone earlier to Ukraine, um, maybe in exchange for a meeting in the White House, etc. Mm-hmm. Very stretched, very thin, very different. Um, but if there is a case to go forward, I certainly believe that witnesses are appropriate. Uh, I think that both sides should be able to select a certain number and that those key witnesses should uh, be subpoenaed and come forward um, and, and testify. Just because you, you mentioned a little bit there about the facts of the president's mm-hmm. impeachment, I want to get back to just the overall structure of an impeachment trial in a minute. But just because you mentioned there um, the president and his, and his conversations with uh, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, uh, let's just talk about that for a second. In your opinion, the July 25th phone call, the infamous call between the two, do you believe that call was appropriate? No, I don't think it was appropriate. Well, I shouldn't say the whole call wasn't appropriate. I don't think it was appropriate for the president to refer to the vice president or suggest that perhaps that he should be investigated in the way that was suggested. But I don't think that it's a a crime that he committed. I don't think it's something he should be impeached for. I've looked for other things that have not been brought out during the course of the investigation. And uh, I would say this is a decision, of, if you think it's a, that grave a nature, that ought to be determined by the voters next uh, year in the election. Uh, it's just not that same level. Uh, it's politically insulting. I know I was on with a former colleague of mine on one of the shows recently, and he thought this was certainly something that Republicans would be upset if it happened to uh, to one of their uh, candidates for president by a sitting Democrat president, and absolutely would be. But that does not mean that it rises to the level of a high crime or misdemeanor. And the, the history, uh, of course, can be highly debated. We, they had witnesses about this in front of the House Judiciary Committee recently. Um, but I buy into the one of the four that uh, says the history about when um, George Mason was promoting the idea that there should be a maladministration or should be something besides treason and bribery, that uh, that um, he, he had several other proposals that were all rejected before high crimes and misdemeanors decided upon. There were things like corruption, using the word corruption, uh, perfidy, which means uh, not being honest, uh, things of that nature, which well, and, and we bribery, think were pretty pretty extreme, but they chose not to do any of right, that. Right. Well, but to your point, also bribery was something that we saw several members of these committees uh, mention throughout the course of the public hearings. Then, interestingly, that was not one of the articles um, that they ended That's up right. including that in one of the articles, rather. Well, I didn't think bribery was there. Um, I'm sure that some did. Obviously, uh, Chairman Schiff did. But I just didn't see it. I've been chairman of the Crime Subcommittee in the House, been attorney general, and the elements criminally of bribery um, are, are simply not there. You, you, the actual um, goods, if you will, the armaments and the aid were delivered, and it's very hard, very difficult circumstantial evidence to suggest that they were, in fact, a, there was, in fact, what they call a quid pro quo that's required. Now, the argument was being made uh, by the Chairman Schiff that uh, bribery for the purposes of impeachment did not require the proof that it would in a criminal case. And, of course, you can make whatever you want in that regard, but it seems to me that history is pretty clear about the general idea of what a high crime and misdemeanor is. It's got to be high. It's a very high standard because the Founding Fathers really weren't interested in going there. And there's all kinds of contextual history that you can go into about it, which some of us who were impeachment trial managers once did go right. into. But um, it's it's a it's obviously a dispute, of, a difference of opinion. <laughs> um, but my opinion is very strongly that there was no bribery 
And I don't think what's been shown so far is a high crime or misdemeanor, but that's to be determined, of course, uh, by the House and ultimately by the Senate. So let's talk about the Senate trial again for a second, if we can, because, you know, in, in reading a little more um, about you and your role, and, and as I mentioned, you, you've obviously been giving interviews about this um, because we haven't done this in 20 years. So a lot of people are interested in what it was like then and, and where it is now. There has been some questions raised about what appears to be the coordination, if you will, uh, between the White House and the Senate Republicans. And as, as you well know, uh, the senators, uh, they're the jurors. They're, they're the ones that are have to hear this case and then uh, make a decision uh, whether or not they believe the president uh, should be removed from office. Do you find anything concerning, in your opinion, um, about the level of conversations right now between uh, the pre- President Trump's White House and uh, Senate Republicans? I'm not really concerned about it. At the end of the day, this is a very political process. It's interesting to think back on the description, I think, even during the deciding about putting this into the Constitution, the founders recognized that fact. It's not a trial in the sense of a criminal trial. The rules that are made by the Senate are the rules that apply, not some rules of court. I know the Chief Justice uh, who presided over this was very uh, concerned at the beginning that he he could wanted to develop these rules, and the senators told him in the Clinton case, uh, you know, we're we're going to do that. We're going to do what we want to do, and that's what's going to happen here. So, you can't completely take the so-called politics out of this. It's not a it's not going to be where the jury, if you will, or the judges, and more like judges, I think, are going to be uh, cordoned off and isolated from hearing the outside world. I mean, senators do. They, they already have been following this. They've already had that opportunity, and many of them have availed themselves of it, I'm sure, to watch portions, if not all, of the various uh, hearings that have gone on and the various arguments that have been made. So this is very different from a courtroom, mm. uh, albeit it is a trial. Um, it's a different kind of trial, and it's, it's a unique type of trial. You know, they have not uh, named the House managers yet uh, for either party that will handle this as it moves its way over to the Senate. Uh, Interestingly, though, one name we saw floated over the weekend, uh, potentially House Democrats are looking uh, at Justin Amash, uh, uh, the Michigan representative who was a member of the Republican Party uh, and ultimately uh, defected uh, in the course of impeachment, uh, now an independent. What would you think of a move like that? To to your point about this is a political process, that's... uh, that is definitely not a subtle political move by the Democrats if they do that. Well, I think the Democrats are looking at this and have been for some time as a major political event in terms of the election next year. Uh, I've said that from the beginning when I was first asked about this. It just struck me that they had no real anticipation that they would get or could get a conviction uh, in the Senate or, or removal from office. And they therefore um, are using this platform to try to convince the American public that uh, that President Trump is not uh, fit to have another term. I, I just uh, think that whatever they do, uh, they're setting things up in that fashion. It's it's all playing to the general public. And by the way, there's there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, except that it seems to me to be a real stretch in this case, uh, what they're calling, a, you know, the abuse of power and what they're saying are is obstruction of justice. Uh, in the sense of what they say he has not answered or didn't produce witnesses. But having said that, it's still their prerogative uh, to, as the managers, as the ones who are going to bring this, to pick who they want to make the arguments as the managers. And uh, they 
they will get an opportunity, whoever is picked, I'm sure, to talk and speak to the Senate. That would be highly unusual if that didn't occur. Mm. And um, so I, I don't begrudge them their choice of whomever they wish. And Congressman, before I let you go, you know, you're someone that obviously knows this process was ingratiated in it 20 years ago. As people are, are going to be watching this uh, right after the holidays, what do you what would you advise someone to be watching for? What, what are those subtle nuances uh, that you think the average eye might miss that as someone who knows this pretty damn well uh, would say, you know, you may want to pay attention to that? Well, I think the summaries of the facts and the rebuttals uh, of the arguments that will be made by the key uh, managers and the president's uh, attorneys or whomever presents on the defense side will be the primary thing to be looking for. I don't think you can judge looking at the faces of the senators, particularly how they're going to vote, although you may have a preconceived notion about that. Uh, And if there are witnesses, and they may be by deposition or they may be live, I always thought live was better. I'd be looking for that if if it gets to that point. Uh, I always thought that Monica Lewinsky should have been brought live and that if you are judging somebody's truth and veracity, and that's important to you in the fact-finding part of this, you need to look at them, their their demeanor, how they present themselves. I've been in many regular trials as well as this is important. So if you're watching at home and have the opportunity for a live witness, uh, look and, and try to judge that witness. Are they telling the truth? Are they being honest? Are they being stretching something? Do they have a point of view, et cetera? But I think the main thing you're going to hear in this, as we had in ours uh, impeachment um, trial, is are, are the arguments. And you can perhaps uh, judge for yourself better after you listen to both sides. Don't don't just listen to one. And be open-minded. I, w- I think that's the most important thing. I think that I, I would stress that with anyone here. Um, it's hard harder here in this case because you've already had so much out in the public. It's, again, not like a regular jury trial. Um, but I think for those at home, it's probably, for many, it would be a case of first impression. So I would hope that people would go into this, regardless of their perspective, with an open mind and think about the law, think about whether these are impeachable offenses. Are they really what the founding fathers intended to remove from office, which is a very high standard, as opposed to points to be made about whether you think that President Trump should be reelected, and then decide also um, what you think about the witnesses and the facts. There are some real differences of facts uh, in this case, it seems to me, if, if you get down into that, uh, different kind of conflicts between witnesses. A lot of things to watch for. It's going to be a busy January. Congressman Bill McCollum, thank you very much for taking time to speak with us. You're welcome, certainly. That is going to do it for this episode of The Investigation. Thank you so much for all of our guests, Tom Yamas and the team, and their excellent reporting on Mike Bloomberg. You can read all about that right now online at abcnews.com. For my co-host, Chris Vlasto, make sure to subscribe to The Investigation, leave us a rating, and thanks for our producers, Trevor Hastings, Emily Rachowski, and Caitlin Fulmer. I'm John Santucci in Washington. We will catch you next time on The Investigation.